Welcome back, folks, to Bounce Off, the number one slam ball podcast in the world. And I am so excited because our first week, our first weekend of slam ball is done. And so much happened. There's so much to talk about. And I'm so excited to get into it with you. Off the top, our headlines are Mob stays undefeated. There's too many rules, according to Nate Robinson. Slashers versus Mob is the second big rivalry in Slam Ball this year. The Buzzsaw aren't pretenders. It's just really hard. Refereeing is also hard. What are the squads from the first weekend? And what are our updated power rankings here on Bounce Off? My name is Sam Roberts. You can find me on social media at Quantum Roberts, Q U A N T U M Roberts. That's on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, if it's even still called Twitter, actually, <laughs> and on TikTok, where we occasionally post some clips from interviews and whatnot. But there is so much to talk about, mainly last night's games, Mob versus Slashers and Griffins versus Buzzsaw, and the winners of those two matches facing off in the main event. Um, and then there's also, as I say, things like refereeing to get into, who have been the best players of the weekend, um, what are we going to talk about in terms of how the teams moved around for power rankings? We will talk about all of that over the course of this episode. For our first two episodes of the season, we were going it in chronological order with game one, game two, and then the main event, or in the case of night one, all of the matches. I think what's really key to do for today's episode, and because the headline is Mob Stays Undefeated, um, we need to have a look at their game first. Um, so the second game of the night was Mob versus Slashers, and that's what we're going to get into right now. Mob and Slashers played in the main event of night one, and so this is the first, I think this is the first rematch. I could be wrong about it, but it's, it's of the weekend, it ended up being the most anticipated match because the Slashers looked really good when they were playing teams not named the Mob, and the Mob looked good against everyone. So the question was, have the Slashers learned anything about how to play the mob and can they apply it? The answer is yes, they, they did. They did learn some things. Yes, they can apply it, but the mob are, are just that good that teams need a little bit more seasoning to be able to implement these strategies. So we will get into this game one. The game ended 72-51 in favour of the mob, which is their second game scoring over 70 points this season, which is more like... is is. Already, according to our friend Tony from Odds Jam, seems to be already like a record in Slamble history, which I'm not entirely sure on that one, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was. This is a really well-coached offensive team. We're going to start talking with the MVP of the weekend, and I don't think anyone would dispute that, the mob stopper in Gage Smith. He's a very physical player as their main defensive threat, and his strength is positional disruption in the bottom tramp, okay? He's, he's physical, but he's not as big as some other stoppers who use their size as their main defensive, their, their, their focus is just to be bigger than whoever's attacking them. He uses positional disruption to stop a team from getting into a comfortable offensive set. That's by timing his jump into his bottom tramp right underneath the basket to perfectly coincide when teams would be making a decision. So they then need to think, right, who's he going to come for? And most of the time, Gage Smith is just there to disrupt their offense. He then bounces back off of the trampoline and resets himself, which means he's always available for whatever sort of decision the offense does make. Sometimes that doesn't go his way. And what the slashers have found out is that a good way to stop Gage Smith's disruption ability is to play a simple style of slam ball, okay? Instead of trying to get into the tramps and be fancy and make some good plays and good passes like they were doing with Tony Crosby the second, their star player, in the first couple of games of the season, instead the plan was just go at Smith, right? 
sent whoever it is, whether it's TC2, Tony Crosby II, or um, Amir Smith, who's their stopper, or Naradine James, double, big double zero, whoever it is, throw them at Gage Smith fast and direct just straight at the basket. And that gave them six early points and gave them a lead to start the game. The problem is they then didn't score again for the rest of this quarter. No, that's not true. That's not true at all. Ignore that. That's a, I'm thinking ahead to a later game. The strategy works in, in the sense that Gage Smith is not the most physical, although he can get stops. It's his thought process and his disruption that helps him defensively. So if you just attack him with bodies fast, he has not as much time to be disruptive and has to just go physical to physical. Or if you fake like you're going to do something fancy and just go straight at him, it can discombobulate him and he's too busy overthinking the situation, right? Which is usually what he's doing on the defensive end to other teams by making them overthink their plans. So going straight at him is a good idea. Something that the Slashes also did was they brought up their, their stopper in Amir Smith and throwing him at Gage Smith, Smith on Smith uh, violence, <laughs> um, which meant you're throwing a big body at him. And again, he's not the biggest guy. He's really good in the air at getting blocks. He's really good at disrupting. But if you throw a big body at him, it's, it's a little bit harder. The problem that you find with that is transition on the other end. And it did bite the Slashers in the, in the backside a couple of times when they would bring up their stopper. And then whether it's a make or a miss from the offensive end, Gage Smith will immediately outlet the ball and the mob are away running. And yes, they can do finesse plays and stuff around the island, but they're also adept at just jumping over defenders, especially if it's someone who's not your starting stopper. They can get around them a lot easier. So there, there are strategies that they are implementing. It is go fast and use size at Gage Smith to disrupt his defense. The thing is, over the course of the game, you find that he is still stopping pretty much everyone but Tony Crosby the second consistently he's getting in their face. And even with TC2, mighty might, as Nate Robinson calls him, even with TC2, it's not like he's scoring on, on Smith every time. It's more of a balanced play, right? He seems to adjust in the second, in the second quarter of the game, uh, does Gage Smith, and just realizes, right, they're not running plays. They're running at me, so I've just got to try and block stuff. Either I make it hard for them and they score and, and we're roughing each other up in the air or I get a block and they don't score at all. So it's it's either I do, he's either doing really good defensively or he's just making it harder for them. And that's kind of all you can ask for if he's not going to make it impossible for them, which is how he'd been playing in the previous two games. The other thing that the Slash has found, so that's, that's how you solve the defensive issue to an extent. It's not perfect. But if you think maybe a, a slightly bigger team, say you've got a team like um, the Lava uh, or the, the Wrath or the Ozone to an extent, right? And they just throw big bodies at Gage Smith, it might be harder. The problem is they're not like just a defensive juggernaut. They are really good defensively, but they're also, as we talked about, they have the biggest average of points per game in the league going with 67.5 points per game going into their second game of the night, which was crazy when the previous game had ended with one team only scoring 30, right? So they're averaging more than double some teams are finishing a game with, right? Their offense is also really key. And we talk about the the, the mob, sorry. We talk about the mob being tricky around the, the island and in the tramps, throwing one, two, three cutters at stoppers, which is a lot for them to have to deal with and to think about in the air. Who are they going to stop? Who, who are they going to challenge? Who are they just going to let go through? What LaMonica Garrett on commentary points out is that the slasher strategy defensively 
against the mob is let them get to the island, okay? Let Cam Horton or Justin Holloway or whoever it is that's running the offense get into the island and then make it incredibly hard for the teammates that they're expecting to cut off them to get into the tramps, okay? You can't hit a guy when he leaves his feet to go into the trampoline, but you can stand in his way. You can use your lateral quickness to just stop them from moving. You can't have unnecessary contact, but if the offensive player runs into you defensively, that's just a no call. You don't get anything out of that from the defensive end. You can't draw a charge in slam ball, but you also don't let them get an easy scoring ability. And then instead of it being three, three guys running at the stopper with pace and cutting off different ways, it ends up being one guy who's stuck on the island and has to find a way to make a play on his own versus a stopper who... Most teams have got a decent stopper. Some teams have got exceptionally good stoppers. We'll see that later in the night. And that's that's probably the best strategy, is let them get to the island and then make it almost impossible for players to cut off of that space. The problem with that ends up being, again, you can't draw a charge in slam ball. There's a lot of credence in, in the name of the offense. And that as soon as they leave their feet, referees are finding it really hard to delineate between a flop jumping because you know you're going to get contact and you're going to get the call creating either a face-off or some bonus points in the foul or it's they'll do it intentionally and that's what is sort of the commentary was suggesting I can see why you're saying that in that it's really hard to implement a strategy of don't let them into the tramps without being unnecessarily rough and creating fouls it's even harder if the, the referees are constantly looking for fouls entering the tramps. And so you're just getting in the way is enough for them to go, well, he left his feet already, so that's a foul. And so whether it was they were being unnecessarily rough or whether the mob were flopping, the slasher strategy is a good one, but it's not perfected because they're giving away too many penalty points to the mob. And so instead of stopping them scoring at the rim, they're letting a guy get to the island and then giving them bonus points to um, off fouls because all the guys who would be cutting to the rim are now just getting fouled going into the trampoline. So it's a slower build of points for the mob, but you're still not stopping them entirely. That being said, I think attacking Gage Smith with a lot of with a lot of energy, pace, and, and size, good way to stop his defensive strengths. And then strong lateral quickness and a lot of perimeter defense after the initial man has entered the island that's probably the best way to stop them on the defensive end, okay? That, that's, those are good strategies. And the Slashers have pointed that out in game one because this is their second time seeing the team. Credit to Stan Fletcher and, uh, and, and the coaching staff for the Slashers in, in working out some ways of doing it. It's just not easy to do, okay? And so that's why this game ends 72 to 51 because even though the, the Slashers were doing really good offensively themselves, um, the mobs still have so much offensive firepower, whether it be in transition or or just it's really hard to stop them if they understand how to play this game, which they're well coached. And it wouldn't surprise me if these guys have got a really deep understanding of what it means to play slam ball that some guys are still waking up to because they should be. This is like freakish knowledge of the game if they're understanding how to draw points like from fouls already in a way that seems natural. We see it with the, uh, with one of the, the handlers for the buzzsaw later. Effectively drawing fouls is not easy in this sport. It is a little bit easier now because the referees are, are conscious of, of trying to make it easy for the offense and, and punishing bad defense. But 
it will come with time and it'll be a lot harder and it's already hard because they know what is and isn't going to be foul. Just delineating between those two things is, is more challenging than you think. And that's why I say referees are trying. It's it's a hard game to referee, especially when you've never done it. And this is the first weekend of competitive play. Okay. The mob were still able to run their sets is the thing. It's it's At a certain point, if you're giving up a lot of points because... You've got this strategy of, of perimeter denial and they're still getting bonus points defensively. You don't want to run into a situation where they don't even need to get physical at the rim and instead you're just giving them free points and possession. So you sometimes want to just trust your stopper's going to do it. And when you do that, again, the mob are really well coached in how to cut around the island. They have a play about a minute 50 into the second quarter, which is maybe the craziest stat cut you see in the whole league. And it's the first time a play has been one of the main, like, like a definitive play, three guys cutting into the tramps around the island, has been one of the top plays of the night from the official Slam Ball Twitter account, right? This is such an obviously good bit of Slam Ball action that it's impossible for people not to just go, wow, that takes a lot of skill. And it did, and it was impressive, and the mob can still get where they want to go. Um, Brandon Smith pulls off a beautiful 360 dunk. That's my next sentence. That's just the sentence. It's, you're going to see it on highlights. If you haven't seen it already today, I'm going to be putting highlights up on, on social media for sure because I just want people to see that again because it was so good. Um, when the mob gets settled into their offense, it's just so hard to stop. Brandon Simpson was able to run and gun because he's a big guy. That's part of the issue as well. It's not enough to stop the cutting play of the mob because they've also just got some size and leaping ability with Brandon Simpson and Darius Clark and Cam Horton and Cam Hollins like you look at them and you go man they're not that big and then you look at them jumping like wow they are that tall though that's whoa they're flying really far and it's a mixture of good coaching unselfish play and also size and and jumping ability It, it is really hard to stop so they started the game actually losing to the, the slashers. I do not want to undersell how good the slashers were in this game. They were up by one at the end of the first quarter. But by the end of the second, it swung to 33-24 in favour of the mob. Right? They are able to use the whole shot clock in a way that other teams aren't. In that they know what they're supposed to do. And if it doesn't work out, they know what to do instead. They seem so comfortable and cool under pressure that someone's going to make a cut to the rim and they're going to get a pass that they're making plays with a second left on the clock, for, on the shot clock. And then you look at other teams in the league and players are taking jump shots from outside the trampoline with seven seconds left because they think, wow, we've, we've wasted the shot clock. That's, that's just under half of your shot clock. Why are you shooting so quickly, right? But I understand it because you're like, we need to get points. Seven seconds isn't enough time to run a play. For the mob, they've already ran two plays by this point. They're just waiting for a last-ditch cut attempt. And if you're on the defensive end, it can be quite easy to go, ah, they've got a second left, they're not going to do anything, and then all of a sudden they're dunking on you and getting three points. So well coached, such a good understanding of the game, it is really hard to do. Um, Crosby the second, I talked a lot early on about his uh, facilitating as a slasher player. As, as the best player on their team from a variety of perspectives, both in getting highlight dunks, but just points in general. Um, I think he's eighth in the league in points thus far this season. But he's also really good at getting into the tramps and I think could be good at facilitating and distributing the ball. The problem is the offense that the slashers are running, if they're not just going one-on-one with the stopper at the rim, 
the offense they're running is so hard to get the timing down on that they are continuously getting called for issues like two in the tramp, right? And this is why. The slasher's offense is multiple cuts specifically around the bottom tramp, okay? So you have a guy coming in from the side, maybe it's Tony Crosby the second, maybe it's another one of their, their more um, skilled passing players. They take a bounce into the tramp, which means they can then go into a second tramp if they want to. You can't have possession of the ball going into two consecutive trampolines, but if you dribble the ball off the trampoline and then catch it again, you're fine. And then they go into the bottom tramp. Then as they are in the air going up, another slasher's player is cutting, getting into that bottom trampoline while there's no one in it, right? So it's not two players in the tramp because one of them's in the air. And then as one's going down, the other is coming up and they have to try and throw an alley-oop pass over an also coming down stopper, catching the ball and dunking it, right? And you see them pull it off and you see other teams pull this off. But with, with that being your number one strategy, and that's how it looks if you're looking at their, their specific, specific strategic play outside of just run and gun at the stopper. It's so complicated timing-wise, it's hard to do. And they've not got it down to an exact science yet, but they are doing it to a degree that you're like, okay, I can see why you're applying to this because it totally takes a stopper out. Their entire attention needs to be on the guy with the ball. And... Stoppers can stop this sort of play, but it's a lot harder than other things like, I don't know, just throwing your body at a guy diving at you. So there's an opportunity there, but the timing is tough. And especially as you get later in a game, it's a really exhausting game. TC2 doesn't come off at all. Uh, players like Gage Smith barely come off the floor. If you're one of the better players on your team, and if your team's got injury concerns, like the Wrath, for example, and you're never getting a rest, these more finesse-style strategic plays become harder and harder because timing gets thrown off by exhaustion and so this will work early on it might not work later on but later on you might be too tired to go for the alternative against the mob which is just throwing a body at them so i feel for the slashers here 51 points against maybe the best defense in the league isn't bad they did really really well in this game um tc2 has the best face-off strategy in the league of sort of a slow run-up so that he can then bolt to the basket, and it's it's really hard for defenders to work out that timing. And um, Amir Smith is is really good at disrupting and blocking the ball defensively. It's just hard when you're you know going up against the best offensive team, right? Who can do it in the half, or they can do it with quick transition, or they can do it on the fast break. All of it's all of it's difficult. What I want to point out is that. Why is it 72.51? The game ended 72.47. Anyway, stats are all over the place. Uh, the league's getting better, and um, I'll put in the description for this video a link to the official stats site for the league right now. They are working on something more, more um, primary, but right now they're using a third-party system that I actually really like. I think it gives a lot of good information. And um, I'll link that into the description. It's for public consumption. I'm not giving out anything that's just media specific. You, you should be able to see this as, as a fan base. And you'll be able to see it. Um, what I want to hit on is one of my headlines from the start of this episode is that we talked about are the Wrath and the Ozone the biggest rivalry in slam ball after weekend one? They probably still are. But the second rivalry is the Slashers and the Mob. So they've obviously met twice now. The Mob have put up 70 points or close to 70 points on the Slashers both times. Um... 
And it's not for lack of trying. The Slashers are a really good team. They're top top 50% in the league, top four teams in the league. It's just hard to compete with the best team. And I think at a certain point you get frustrated, especially because there's now this opinion online that the mob might be... And maybe this is because there's so much action offensively, but the referees are struggling to keep up with three second counts on the island for them. And that's something that I'm hoping this coming week will be adjusted for just so we can see if that's the case or or if the mob are just really this good but that can get frustrating if you're playing against it regularly as can the fact that the mob are really physical on the outside as can the fact that gage smith is hard to get into as can i'm told that their head coach brendan kirsch who we will have an interview with coming out tomorrow um i'm told he can be a bit chirpy on the sideline and so that's what happens in this game uh, Brad Laubacher of the Slashers makes a bad uh, defensive play on a face-off. He ends up drifting, which is where you jump forwards defensively. You have to go straight up and down as a stopper. And so what was a block is actually called as two points to the mob because Laubacher made a bad play. And then he immediately goes to the mob bench and starts like chirping with, with Coach Kirsch. And then you've got Amir Smith who gets a massive dunk on Cam Horton. Uh, massive, massive, massive dunk, and then starts flexing on him just to prove that he, you know, he's got that strength, he's got that power. Don't look too hard while I'm flexing. You'll strain your eyes. Um, and it just felt like there was an energy about this game, right? After that big hit, it led to a foul, and Cam Horton does a through the leg dunk just to prove he can on on the face off, and like, not on the face off. Sorry, after they'd taken a bunch of time out the clock. This is the third quarter. So the mob are already up at this point. But then, later in the game, Cam Hollins gets a massive hit on Amir Smith who goes down, flies down, does Cam Hollins. And out of nowhere, CP2, not CP2, TC2, Tony Crosby II, runs from his own tramp and absolutely bodies Cam Hollins. Which, of course, results in, like, the two of them getting face-to-face and it looks like T- uh, TC2 is putting his hands up. He wants to fight. Cam Horton takes him away from the action to just try and break up the situation. All the teams are a bit hot. So when Horton takes Crosby over to the island, the two of them start jawing and everyone needs to get separated again, right? The actual hit was an extension of the arms from Holland. So that's a foul. You can go with your, your arms if you want. You can lead with that. But you need to keep them close to your chest. If you extend outwards, that's a foul, right? So there was a foul there. Fair play. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, TC2 was just trying to protect his guy. You know, you got to ride for your guys and that's what he's doing. Plus, the game had been chippy. He'd got a technical foul earlier in the game for throwing the ball in the air because he was just getting frustrated at calls. And this hit that he then makes on Holland's is enough for him to get ejected. So... The, the Slashers have to play the remainder of the game without their star player. And with that, the Mob are still trying to score a bunch of points to, to continue to have high percentages. But they can still take Gage Smith out of the game and bring on Deontay Bird as, as their backup. And why can they do that? Because they know they've got another game to play in like 15 minutes after this one. And they already got 13 stops out of Gage Smith. They don't need any more. And they're already up by at least 20 at this point. And like I say, they end up finishing the game 72-47. It's really hard to play against this team and to stop them scoring a bunch and also to score on them. And the Slashers have got the right idea and other teams should be looking at that as maybe a blueprint. But it's not 
an exact science. None of slam ball is an exact science, especially not when it's been off the air for 15 years in the US. Seven years even if you want to go to the most recent season and all these guys are brand new. It takes time to get used to it, but the slashers have got the right idea. That was game two of the night. Um, I skipped over game one just because I felt like slashers mob is the headline we needed to talk about, right? I will now talk about Buzzsaw versus Griffins. The game ended 41-30 to 30 in favour of the Buzzsaw. But, with a minute left in the game, it was 30-35 to 35 for the Buzzsaw. And the Griffins gave this game away from misunderstanding of uh, a key point of emphasis for this new season, okay? And that was sort of the recipe for the Griffins throughout this game. And for the Buzzsaw, there was a, there was a couple of issues from both teams. The buzzsaw really early in the game had a couple of little technical mistakes, whether it was three seconds on the island or too many guys in the tramp. They needed to settle down and get into their offense. And when they did, it looked a lot more comfortable. Deontay Pratt in, in particular was making a number of poor decisions, whether it be on the island or passing. And he has those throughout the night in this game and then in the main event against the mob. It's nothing egregious, but you can tell that he's getting frustrated that he's not quite got it down. But again, he's not the only guy in this game that's making those mistakes. If we look at the first round pick for the Griffins and Justin Holmes, he's also regularly making mistakes, more so than Pratt is. And that's maybe an issue for you when a lot of the offense for the Griffins goes through, um, goes through Holmes. So both teams are making little errors. But the very big error for the Griffins is based around this, this new rule called the make it or the the make it, take it, make it, break it, however you want to call it. There's a fun rhyming system in there somewhere. Um, I should really be checking the rule book to make sure I get it right. But commentary doesn't know anything either. So um, it's, it's one of those things that the rule has been miscommunicated somewhere along the line. So the make it, break it rule is, as we know, each team gets one face-off per quarter. That means if you if you have an aggressive foul, if you tackle someone with traps, it results in a face-off, which is the defensive player versus the offensive player, one-on-one -one at the basket. Any foul that occurs after that one face-off per quarter results in bonus points. It's two bonus points per foul for the first two fouls after that. Anything beyond that, it's three points plus possession. You also get possession on the ones that are worth two points, right? That's, that's what we're doing here. In the last... 20 seconds of the fourth quarter, 20 seconds, any face, any fouls result in face-offs. And typically with a face-off, regardless of the result, the offensive team gets possession of the ball back. But in a make-it-take-it situation, if they miss, the defense gets possession. So this is a really good way with 20 seconds left in the game for a defensive team to try and get more bites of the apple and try and win the game if they're close. Five points in it, the Griffins were close. We've got a four-point line in slam ball. If you were to get a dunk and then a four-point shot, even if you got two dunks, you're in the lead by one, right? The Griffins should be looking for that. Here's the problem. Either the players on the court or the coaching staff, but definitely commentary, along the way, someone's got the misunderstanding that the make-it-take-it is in the last minute of play, okay? What happens in the last minute of play is that any referee's whistle stops the running clock. But the make-it-take-it is only the last 20 seconds. So with a minute left in the game, there are two egregious, intentional fouls from the Griffins because they think, and commentary repeats it, because you've now got fans who think that 
The Griffins got screwed out of this by the referees. They didn't. They made fouls thinking they get to make it, take it, and they've not understood the rules. And because they'd already given away too many fouls that quarter, that was an automatic six points to the buzzsaw. So instead of this being 30-35 with a minute left, you end up getting down to 18 seconds left because the buzzsaw are trying to waste time and the Griffins are trying to foul because they don't fully understand what's going on. And all of a sudden it's 41-30. And how, how do you come back from an 11-point deficit with 18 seconds left? It's not possible, right? It's not possible in this game with a running clock. So I feel for the Griffins because, again, it's, it's a hard game to master. And not everyone's got the time to be a nerd like me and go through the rules, but you'd hope that the coaching staff would and that they have an understanding and they can shout from the sideline, don't foul, last 20, something like that. So that's, the, I think the biggest takeaway from this game is that it was it was close and it was physical. Connor Hollenbeck with a face guard is souped up defensively. He had nine blocks in the whole game, nine stops in the whole game, sorry. A lot of them in the first quarter to the extent you could probably think that might be the most in a quarter per, for, for any game, for any player. Uh, Justin Holmes really showed his ability to move in the air and score, to move the ball around and get past stoppers. Um, we talk about Adam Stanford having some really big, impressive highlight dunks and, and stuff like that. Um, but they are giving up so many points on penalties, right? At the end of the game, it was... Or not even at the end of the game, when it was 35-30, to 30, right? So this is before the six extra points that the Griffins gave away trying to even things up. At, the, at that point, when it was 35-30, to 30, the buzzsaw had a 15-2 to 2 advantage in bonus points, okay? So that means that the Griffins are making really, really bad defensive decisions, giving away points, and if you take those out of the game, the score is instead 20-28, to 28, and the Griffins are up with a minute left, okay? That's just not going to win you slam ball games. You have to be more disciplined defensively. The, the Griffins are doing a really good job in terms of defensive stats. Connor Hollenbeck, their, their stopper, is, is putting it out on all of his social media. They, are, they have the least points against in the league. And that's because he's doing really well at the rim. That's because they're a very physical team. But you've given away 15 points in terms of bonus. That needs to come down if you're going to win these games. Because it's great to be good defensively, but you've also lost both of your games so far. You need to find a way of bringing that number down further or bumping those offensive numbers way high up. And I, I don't know what it is that they're missing. I like their pieces. I think it might just be a offensive identity beyond give it to our star players and have them try and score. Because that's what it feels like when you watch the Griffins. Um, the buzzsaw made mistakes earlier, we talked about that, but definitely in the second, second half, they settled down way more. They are comfortable cutting off the island and creating multiple uh, like concerns for a stopper. They are probably the next best team in the league after the mob at that type of strategy. It's working well for them, and obviously they've had to practice against it because the mob and buzzsaw played each other a lot in training. But they were able to be comfortable and confident while the Griffins made more and more mistakes that got more and more costly as the game went on. And that's the biggest takeaway from this game. The refs didn't screw the Griffs. The buzzsaw didn't take advantage of things. It's a hard game to master. The Griffins gave away some bad points and late game situation is not great across the league right now. For, for close games, it's a struggle for teams to work out how best to play it. And it's the first weekend of games, okay? We've got three more weekends of this and then playoffs. And that's going to be 
you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night action for three more weeks. You'll work, some teams will work it out, some teams won't. This will show a lot about coaching ability. But late game situation for sure. Uh, unnecessary points being given away for sure. And just, you need to be more comfortable in the game. The mob look really comfortable all the time. The buzzsaw set when they get comfortable are looking really good. Teams that aren't comfortable offensively and that are giving away too many fouls defensively are struggling. And that's, that's the big thing. We move to the main event of the night. After Mob Slashers, this is the most anticipated game of Weekend 1. After the first night of games, right? Because the Mob and the Buzzsaw were seen as the two teams that... The Mob were seen as the best team in the league by pretty much... It's almost unanimous, right? And I do not think... If coaches want to tell me that's not true, the stats are not helping your argument if you're saying that they're not definitively the best team in the league okay but the buzzsaw are no scrubs they're second best team in the league for sure and and pretty much every everyone who's following this thing closely buzzsaw are second best team for sure and going into this game they were the only two undefeated teams left in the league right they'd both won both their games on friday night and they'd both won their first game of night on sunday so this was it this is Someone's O has got to go. One team's going to end up 3-1. The other's going to be 4-0. The Mob, for sure, number one. The Buzz saw a team that could probably take them. The game is all about defense tonight, okay? The final score ends up being Mob with 50, Buzz saw with 31. This is a defensive like clinic from the stoppers. Gage Smith and Taekwon Scott going back-to-back with big blocks, big stops at their respective rims. Taekwon Scott... Possibly the second best stopper in the league. Gage Smith, I think, again, statistically and eye test wise, you've got to consider him the best stopper. Taekwon Scott is definitely in the conversation for second best, and it's because he loves the physicality. He loves the blocking, okay? With this game, we'll just go chronologically. The mob suffocate the buzz early on defensively for a first couple of possessions and make them uncomfortable, right? We talked about comfortability being a big thing. The buzz are not comfortable to start this game because the mob are going, we're going to make it as hard as possible for you to score. They have a couple of poor possessions and that's just because they need to get comfortable and get into their offensive sets. And maybe this is something to watch out for with them going forward that each game they play, at least on Sunday night, both games they started slow and got comfortable as things went on. So keep an eye on that. But on the other end, Taekwon Scott made it really hard for the mob to score. That's because they they were not getting comfortable with their own offense. Sure, they were getting to the rim more than the buzz were in the early stages of this game, but they were only throwing one person. And Taekwon Scott is a big physical guy. He knows his timing at the stopper position. You are not going to get past him with one guy. Anything straightforward, one cut or one drive, it's not going to get through against Taekwon. He would struggle as soon as they threw even two cuts at him, though, okay? Two cuts is the most that teams are doing. The buzz are doing two cuts sometimes. The mob are regularly doing it. They were not doing it in this first quarter, but in all the other games, you're seeing the two, you're seeing the three cuts, you're seeing the drives. And when they would throw that at Taekwon Scott, it's hard for him to stop. It's hard for anyone to stop. I'm not begrudging him. He did great on -on one-on-ones or two-on-ones where it's a single cut. But as soon as it was a two-person action, it's hard to stop. The quarter ends 11-6 to six for the mob. It's super physical out the rim and in the open floor, but neither team is making big hits, nor are they like giving up defensive points with bonuses, right? They're making good defensive aggression their thing and getting in the way. So it's a low-scoring first quarter. Part of the game going forward, especially in the second quarter, that you, you really need to 
talk about when you talk about Gage Smith as the best stop in the league, is knowing when nothing's coming from the offense and when to step back. I talk about his timing to disrupt plays by getting to the bottom tramp. If he sees someone coming at him, right, and this is a this is a really interesting thing that I do not know how he's working it out, but there are times where a player is driving right at the rim. They're driving right at him. And by all intents and purposes, you need to assume they're coming to dunk on me. And if you're the stopper, you have to go straight up and down and try and stop that. What's Gage Smith doing? Well, sometimes he's going into the tramp and then immediately jumping back out to behind the tramp. And it's not that he's getting like scared and thinking, right, I'll just let them get the points. I'm not putting my body in the line. Whenever he does it, it happens on a play where they weren't going to dunk anyway. They pass it out or they then land on the island and they're trying to make a play. And then he's back in the bottom tramp to make a stop on that or to disrupt the offense flow. How he's able to look at their intentions coming at him and know this isn't a dunk attempt. I need to reset myself. I don't know how he's doing it. Uh, maybe it's an eyes thing. Maybe he can tell by looking in their eyes and seeing where they're looking. Maybe it's just wild luck. But that's absolutely something you need to look at. The mob start to fight back again with misdirection um, at the rim. But they started to incorporate things that they haven't been doing in earlier games. So the early part of misdirection is to send multiple guys into the tramps at the same time. So that the stopper has to go, right, there's one guy there and one guy there and one guy there. And they are all cutting towards the basket and then off of each other so that passes can be made in the air. Something they started doing in the second quarter that is different is that mob players were running the court, going into the wing or side tramps, and not cutting to the basket, but just going straight to the wall. So as a stopper, you're going, there's a guy there. Oh, wait, he's gone past me. Wait, is he going to go behind me and he's an option back there? And then guys are coming at you at the same time. And so there's so much to think about, not just coming at you, but also at the sides where you have to make a decision of, do I trust my teammates to stop them from doing anything in the tramps? Or do I need to keep an eye on this guy who could be coming from behind me on a cut? What's the, what's the scope there? That becomes really difficult to stop as the defensive guy. You then have players like Brandon Simpson, who if he makes a cut and it's not one where he's aiming to score, he then ends up, like I'm saying, on the baseline behind the tramp with the ball sometimes, if maybe he's messed up in the air or just the plan was never to score. And then the stopper's having to look over his shoulder at this guy while players are cutting towards him from the other angle. And unless your peripheral vision as stopper is incredible, you've got to watch a guy who could jump at you from the side. You've got to watch guys coming at you directly towards the basket. And you've got to anticipate who's the guy that's going to receive this ball in the cut. And unless your teammates are able to stop those guys driving in from, from the front of the basket and get in their way on the perimeter, it's two on one every time. If you can stop guys at the perimeter after people like Brandon Simpson make this cut to the baseline, it becomes one-on-one. -on -one. The stopper just needs to keep an eye on the guy with the ball. But it's, as we've talked about, proving very difficult to find a way to stop the mob cutters from getting into the tramps. Whoever can work out a way to do that without giving away an insane number of fouls, whether it just be standing still or having insane lateral quickness to keep up with it, my hat is going to be off to them because it's, it's so far proving really, really difficult. Um, defensively for the mob, something you notice is they don't make a huge number of mistakes. This is an eye test thing, right? Commentary were saying it, I'm noticing it as well. It feels like they're not giving away a lot of points by making unnecessary tackles um, and roughing up players defensively so that they get easy points, right? I think a lot of that comes from trusting their stopper. But if you look at the stats 
they are still giving up 22 violations over the first four games, right? So they're they're averaging just over, you know, they're averaging five and a half violations per game, right? Which is tied for the, the most violations total. Um, just interesting note on that. The Slashers are bottom of the league with 12 violations over uh, four or three games. So that's that's the least number and it's four per game. I just want to point that out because the Slashers aren't going to get as much love as I think they should do for being as good as they've been and just having to come up against the mob twice, but I just want to put it out. Anyway, 22 violations over the first four games for the mob, but there's no breakdown on how many of those result in giving away points, and how many of those are just things like three-second violations or two guys in the tramp violations, so the eye test says they're not giving up many points defensively by making mistakes versus other teams who maybe are. We talked about that earlier with with um, the Griffins, and so... That's another, that's another thing you've got to look at, right? I want to give the Buzz a lot of credit. Again, I think they're the second best team in the league and that should be with a bullet and most people are agreeing. And that's because they're the next best team at those cuts off the island. They've got one of the best stoppers in the league at Taekwon Scott and they are being coached well and what to pay attention to. And ultimately, defensively, they've held the mob. This is the lowest score the mob have had. 51 is the lowest score the mob have had in four games. They still won by 21 points and that's because... They are that good. But credit to the Buzz for holding them to their lowest points per game. And that's got to be down to Taekwon Scott in that first quarter holding them to 11 and, and just the team in general making it a physical game that the Mob have to contend with. A question mark for that stat. The Mob had obviously just done their first ever second game, like the back-to-back situation where if you're in game two, you've only got a 15-minute turnaround before it's then game three. So if you're the second team... You don't quite have all of your lungs there. But that's just a little question mark for the, for this this thing I'm touting with the buzz. But yeah, they're the the mob are just really good. They are really, really good. And I you can you cannot want me to say it. You cannot want fans to be saying it, but the, the eye test and the stats aren't lying that they are definitely the best team in the league and they are the team to beat now. It's not just about it's not what have you done for me, it's, it's, it's now what have you done for me lately, right? It's not about what you've done in the past. It's not about the three championships, technically four championships that the, the mob have in Slam Ball's history. It's not about Coach Kirch's um, pedigree to an extent. It's not about draft order. It's about what have you done for me lately and what they've done for you lately is average over like 60 points per game when other teams are averaging 30 and having a point differential of over 100 points, right? That's what's crazy about this this team, and that is what is crazy about how they're playing. The Buzzsaw are definitely second. They've got another nice point differential on their own, but it's um, yeah, man, it's uh, something to keep an eye on. Eye on um, how our team's going to contend with the, with the mob. Some teams are nervous about. Some people are nervous about, is this just going to be another domination? I don't think it's going to... They're not going to go undefeated, right? I am calling it right now. There is no way that the mob are going to go undefeated. Uh, Something will happen. We've seen it be very physical for other teams, like the Wrath, who have lost a number of players uh, due to injury. And at some point, that could catch up with the mob. I'm not wishing that. I'm just saying it's not going to be all mob everywhere. But they now have the biggest target on their back. And people are, are coming after the family. That's that's just facts. And the buzz and the slashers have shown you how to do it. 
Those are the games from last night. Let's talk about a couple of the refereeing concerns that people have, and then we'll get into the weekend's uh, the weekend's MVPs, the, the the best four, best five players from the weekend, and then we'll do a, a roundup with the the power rankings for for the league so far. So refereeing, the biggest thing for me is someone who's watching this like a hawk. Um, you can watch this casually if you want, just enjoy the, the big hits and stuff and listen to nerds like me explain the minutia. The referees, at least last night, we can hear what they're saying on the floor a lot more than in other sports. So I want a lot of transparency with this league. We've not had any injury updates on how players are doing. Will we find out how players are doing that have suffered injuries? Those of you who aren't nerds like me don't even realize that there are people registered with teams who aren't going to play this season because of injuries they've already suffered, right? So I want more transparency from the league. And part of that is going to come with things like, do we get a last two minute report from referees like you would in a close basketball game in the NBA? Are we going to get a breakdown of here's why this decision was made at this time by a referee? Uh, I don't think so. And that's because there's so much to do with a, with a new league like this, especially when the league is running all the teams individually. They've got so much to contend with. But what I like is that because we can hear the referees, we at home who are paying a huge amount of attention, we can see, right, this is why this decision is to be made or this is what the call is. The problem is that's not being communicated with to commentary. And so commentary can't explain it well. Um, it's great that as an audience we get it, but you need the people who are the voices of your league, you need the commentary team to be able to say, this is the call, this is why it's happened, this is the impact it's going to have on the game. And there was too many instances this weekend of commentary going, what happened there? What was that? Well, I think it's this. And then we hear the referee saying something completely different. Um, and again, we, we come back to fans now thinking that the Griffins were screwed out of that game with the buzzsaw because the referees made a bad call because the commentary kept saying, it should be a make it, take it, it should be a make it, take it, it should be a make it, take it, when the referees were totally within the right, within the rule book to withhold those face-off attempts, right? Another thing I want to see showed up is tackling. There are big hits that are happening that are being called as fouls and there are highlight plays for the night. There are other hits that are equally, like they're, they're coming at the same angle. In slam ball, you have to hit face on, but there's some hits that are coming from the side and they're not getting called as fouls. And so, why? I want that explained in some way. No, I don't need you admin on the Twitter to explain it to me. I'm just meaning the league in general. I need someone to explain the difference between the hit that Jamal Barnes Jr. had on Adam Stanford last night versus one of the uh, like one of the many other hits that wasn't called as a foul. Is it just the arm extension thing? Is side on okay now and the rule book's just not been updated? The one I've got sat right here in front of me. What what is the difference in these calls? Okay. Um the other thing that's difficult for the referees, and this is why it's I, I'm giving them a lot of credence because it's a brand new league. It's hard to keep up with these things, but there's a lot of inadvertent whistles coming on. Not as many last night as there were inadvertent whistles on Saturday night, but there's a lot of times where the refs are blowing and then going, ah, that wasn't a call. We just need to reset the game. And that's slowing things down, okay? In a league where the aim is be fast, be fast, be fast, slowing things down to this extent is um, not ideal. So it's that that's something they've got to get over, but that's a nervousness of they want to make the right call and they want to make sure that teams are being penalised for being too rough defensively, but it is impacting the game in negative ways. Ultimately, it's not easy 
being cheesy. It's definitely not easy refereeing. Uh, I also regret saying that. I'm sorry you had to hear it. Um, it's not easy being a referee. And there's a lot that they have to try and work out and contend with and learn. This is weekend one. I'm sure they're going to sit down and look at film just like the players are going to, just like the coaches are going to. And we'll have an improvement on refereeing going into week two. Okay. Now we get to the fun part. We get to look at the weekend's top five players uh, in the form of the, the week one, the week one star, all-star five, however you want to call it. And we like to look at power rankings. Um, we'll start with Stopper. And no one's going to be surprised when I say Gage Smith is the MVP of the weekend. People on Twitter are saying it, and they've not even got access to the stats yet. Again, link in the bio for if you want to see the stats. But I'm going to give you to them, give them to you right now. Eye test, he is everywhere defensively disrupting the play. Eye test, he is the guy who is advancing the ball for fast breaks. Eye test, he is running offensive sets in the half court, right? At least before it gets into the island. And he's scoring a little bit, right? Stats-wise, Gage Smith, the stopper for the mob, who I think has played, you'd, you'd probably you'd probably be right to say, out of 80 minutes of action for the mob this weekend, I think he probably played 76 minutes of it, right? So he's doing a lot. He is first in the league in steals from any position with 10 steals over the four games, right? So two and a half steals per game. He is first in the league in LBRs, which is a slam ball centric stat called loose ball retrievals, which is just going after loose balls either in the tramps or, or over the court and getting it. Um, he's first in the league with 37 over the four games. So almost 10 per game. And he is first in the league in stops, which is blocks at the rim, with 40. This man is averaging 10 stops per game over those the first weekend. He is the first for totals. And then if you want to break it down into averages, he is also first in all the averages for those stats. Average steals, average stops, average LBRs. This is a complete defensive game. Part of it's the disruption I'm talking about. But you're not going to get stopping stats like that unless you're also putting your body on the line. My thing earlier about throw size at him, keep throwing size at him. If I if I am a completely healthy Wrath team, I'm throwing Christian Grey. I'm throwing um uh, St uh yeah, Stephen Julian III. I'm throwing Ty McGee, of course. I'm throwing Sean Stiff at him and making him have to get physical. But he's also backing it up with the numbers. This is an insane defensive, like, like behemoth that you've got in Gage Smith and it's kind of terrifying what you're going to notice and there's an obvious reason for this um I am going to keep talking about the mob with this all-star four and that's because it's not just that they're winning it's that the players are are doing excellently on their own Cam Horton is the all-star handler for for the first weekend right he was 7th in the league in points with 36 points over the 4 games, which again averages all out to uh, like 9 nine a game, close to 9 a game. Uh, exactly 9 a game. Terrible from me. Um, and he's 3 of 4 from face-offs. Now with that stat on the, on the tracking, I don't know if that's only offensive because that, that tracks for me. I think the way that they're tracking face-offs is purely an offensive thing. They're not currently tracking it defensively. I have asked the league for a clarification on that. But 
it wouldn't surprise me if it's purely offensive, and that would mean that Cam Horton made three out of four face-offs over the weekend. He's first in the whole league with number of assists with 14. So again, we're looking at three and a quarter per game. And he's got 12 loose ball retrievals to go along with that, including five hits over the four games. So that's like hits in the open floor, which a lot of people have got five hits, but that ultimately means that he's tied for third in the league right now. Okay, so Cam Horton distributing for the team on offense, first in the league in assists, but doing bits and pieces in terms of scoring and then contributing defensively for his team on the perimeter as well and going after loose balls, which he doesn't necessarily need to do because Gage Smith has all of them anyway. So Cam Horton as your all-star handler for the weekend. We'll finish out the trio of, of mob players that make up this all-star four by talking about Darius Clark. He's second in the league with 83 points over four games, which means he's averaging 20 and a bit or 19 and a bit. No, 20 and a bit points per game. He's tied for the most hits in the league with six hits, um, which is also with the other gunner we'll talk about in a moment. And he's a perfect three of three in face-offs, okay? Along with that, he's also 11th in the league with 13 LBRs. So another guy who's doing it all offensively in terms of just scoring, he is the guy who's benefiting the most from the way that the mob is running their offense and being the running buddy of Cam Horton in the starting four where he's getting a lot of these passes. Um, but he's also, again, the team's doing business with LBRs, which is a hustle stat that shows that you're trying defensively. And that's what Darius Clark is doing as well. The starting four of our All-Star Weekend 5 obviously is rounded out by a non-mob player. It has to be rounded out with Ty McGee from The Wrath. He's first in the league in points total with 91 over four games, including setting the record for the most points ever in a game with 43 in the first game of the night on Saturday. Um, but he's also leading the league in hits tied with uh, Darius Clark at six over the four games. So that's, um, we talked about that yesterday, but he's playing very high up defensively. Sort of the first guy that an offense has to come into contact with, which means he's able to make hits, he's able to disrupt the play, and he's also able to get the ball on fast breaks and try and score at the other end for the wrath. These are good things for him. He's also fourth in the league in loose ball retrievals with 26. So again, doing bits and pieces to try and help out his team outside of just scoring. And he's also, unfortunately, tied first in the league for turnovers, right? That's with uh, Tony Crosby the second of the Slashers and Terrell Howard of the Buzzsaw. He's tied first for turnovers. I think that comes with the territory of being the best player on a team that's getting four games in a weekend. Turnovers are just going to come, especially if early on, the, the Wrath strategy wasn't purely let's get McGee and let him score a bunch. And it was a more of a mixture, which included him trying to distribute and facilitate for other players, which, as we've talked about previously, the Wrath are struggling with connecting those together, right? So turnovers are going to come with the, the territory of being the main guy for a team that's getting wins. But all those other stats are just, you know, first in the league in points per game with, with eight above the guy in second, most points ever scored in a game for a, for a player, and leading the league in hits with a top five in LBR. Really good statistics for, for Ty McGee outside of just scoring. Your fifth man for the weekend is Tony Crosby II. I'm not sure if this is a great pick for fifth man, but I want to give a shout out to TC2 because he's shot up as like a social media superstar for the team already. He's got an eye test that I really enjoy seeing. Again, his, his maneuvering around the, the tramps and being able to get onto the island in a way that can set up things for his teammates and also worry a stopper. Um, he's 8th in points with 34 points on the weekend, which is good, including 4 of 5 in face-off opportunities. 
And I just think this guy could do so much more um, if him and his teammates can work out the, the passing and the distribution from the island and if he's just allowed to run and gun a little bit more. And if they hadn't come against the mob twice, who are a suffocating defense and really good offensively as well, right? So Tony Crosby II is the fifth man for the weekend. So your all-star four for the first weekend of slam ball action is Gage Smith at stopper from the mob, Cam Horton at handler from the mob, Darius Clark at gunner from the mob, and Ty McGee with the most points ever in a game from the Wrath at the other gunner position. Your fifth man, Tony Crosby the second from the Slashers. In terms of other guys you could consider, obviously a big shout out to the Buzzsaw who are the second best team in the league. It's just hard based on the, the best players they have in my mind being Tyquan Scott and Jamal Barnes Jr. You cannot get in over the stats that Cam Horton has or the eye test and stats that Gage Smith has, but really good weekend from Tyquan Scott defensively and from Jamal Barnes Jr. in terms of big hits and scoring for the buzz. Bryce Moraine on the lava is a top scorer in this league despite only having played two games in the weekend. He is not blowing me away in the same way that you'd expect from a number one overall pick that's being called the most complete player in the league, but he is giving me confidence that if the lava can can overcome the late game problems that they've been having, that Bryce Moraine is going to be really good. And then Sean Stith from the Wrath, he's clearly the heart and soul of that team and he's doing a lot on the defensive end as well. Uh, keeping them in games where maybe their offense isn't clicking. So those are some potential uh, guys that you want to shout out after weekend one. That's our all-star four for the weekend. Let's talk about an updated power rankings. Number one with a bullet is the mob. They're 4-0 on the weekend, a perfect weekend for them. They've gone up six positions in my personal rankings from preseason. I want to give personal preseason rankings for me a little pinch of salt because... We're going off who knows what. We're going off the research I'm doing into these guys' background and the couple of clips we get to see from practice. We don't have all the information. I got told even by Coach Hernando of the Buzzsaw that the mob are a team to watch out for and that seven was incredibly low. So them being at first, hopefully I'm giving them the credit they deserve now, okay? Perfectly coached for multiple cutters in and around the island. Even when plays go wrong, they're composed and they find alternatives. Three of their starting four make up the like the first, second, and fifth most assists in the league, right? Cam Horton is first, Brandon Simpson is second, and Justin Holloway is fifth in the league in assists. So it's sharing the ball. It is not, I win this game for my team. It is, we're all winning together. Um, they're still aggressive enough to put up a good defense on the perimeter. They also obviously have the best stopper in the league after four games. Can he keep it up? We'll wait and see. They are a fast break threat. They've got an insane average in terms of points per game. Um, this is why I need to look it up because I totally forgot to do that. But their plus minus is 116. So they're, they're, they have 116 more points that have been scored against them. The next best for that is tied at 30 points for the buzzsaw and the wrath. Everyone else is in the minus. And we'll talk about the buzz on the wrath momentarily. But plus minus of 116 is just crazy for, for this team. They're doing really, really well. But you didn't need me to tell you that the mob are the best team in slam ball right now. Um, will the league catch up on the potential three-second violations that Twitter's calling out? Coach Berkoff, former slam ball coach on Twitter, is really active when games are on and talking about the league. And um, he's, he seems to believe that, yes, the mob are getting away with three-second violations not getting called. Will refereeing catch up that? We will see. Or is it just a fact that they're that good and it just looks like three seconds? We shall see. 
Second best in the league is the Buzzsaw. They went 3-1 on the weekend. They've gone up five spots compared to my preseason rankings. Why are they in this position? Well, they're the second best team that cuts off the island after the mob. That much is clear. They have a couple of different options. Again, Jamal Barnes Jr. is really good at the gunner position. Tyquan Scott is maybe the second best stopper in the league. He's very physical and loves that spot. They have a clear, defined strategy on the offensive end, and they're more than willing to get physical. Coach Planells, I think, wants... He will say that it's about the experience. I think he wants to win. And being 3-1 and one and being considered second best when maybe you want to be considered best is going to be enough for him to go, now we're, we're, we're out to prove something now. We are the ones that are targeting the mob. You had an opportunity. They held the mob to their lowest score of any game thus far. That shows a lot for the buzzsaw. That's a lot about why they're here. But it's not just how they play against good teams. It's also that they're putting away bad teams, okay? The Wrath are in third place. They won three games, lost one on the weekend as well. They are exactly where I thought they would be pre-season at third in the league. Definitely one of the best players in Ty McGee in terms of scoring. He just needs to be able to connect with his teammates better in terms of distribution. Generally speaking, gel for the Wrath isn't quite coming together. But, you know, we can, we can see where that goes. The biggest concern with the Wrath is, first of all, they don't have a clear offensive like strategy outside of give it to Ty McGee and see what you can do. Occasionally get fast breaks with guys like Stephen Julian III, Christian Gray at your gunner. But Christian Gray and Stephen Julian III might both be injured this week. We still haven't been told what happened with Christian Gray. Stephen Julian III went out with a bad knee, haven't been told what happened with him. Stephen Landers is also out for this team. They've already had to dip into the taxi and bring up Ryan Johnson from the taxi squad, which is the, the selection of players who are part of the Slam Ball League but don't belong to a team and are brought in to replace injured players. Um, they've already had to dip into that. If the Wrath can't get healthy, this league is predicated on winning games to get playoff positions. So your goal every night is to win a game. It's not just to coast and put up numbers, it's to win a game. So if you're throwing out Ty McGee and Sean Stith and Ryan Johnson and Darian Slade, who's been a beautiful player to watch uh, when it's mattered for the Wrath, when they've been missing these guys to have him play. If you're throwing out these guys and saying, we need you to play 20 minutes straight, score a bunch, defend a bunch, take on the best players in the other team. Oh, and when you win, we then need to try and win the main event matchup for tiebreakers when it comes to playoff time. That's going to be so exhausting to try and keep up with as a team. And if you're not healthy enough to keep up with that, they're going to get burnt out very fast. Fourth place is the Slashers. One of the best players in the league with TC2 and Tony Crosby the second. Um, that's an eye test thing. That's a social media thing. That's a eighth in the league in scoring and should be getting a lot more distribution thing. Good coaching in terms of challenging the mob, right? Stanley Fletcher and his coaching staff have seen an issue, they've tried to address the issue, they've come up with ideas. That fills me with confidence. They've not perfected it, but they're looking at their opposition, they're going, what can we do to make it harder for them? And they're coming up with ideas. So the Slashers, I have faith, it's just not easy when you come up against the best team in the league twice in the season. So that's why they are one and two in games. They've gone up four spots from my, my preseason predictions. I thought they'd be the worst team in the league. They are very deserving of this fourth place spot. The Lava, I've got at fifth in the league. That is four spots lower than I thought they would be pre-season. They had two games. They've lost two games on the season. Now, you might be asking me, why are they above the Ozone who are at sixth? Well, yes, they've lost two games. But both of those games came down to the wire and they end up losing by about four points. Okay, if we look at the point differential, 
for the Lava. They are fifth, sorry, they are fourth in the league in point differential. They're the only team um, without a, like, so they're, they're the top half of teams in terms of point differential. Yes, they've got a minus, but it's the only single digit minus in the league, right? They have lost two games by a combined eight points over those two games. If things swung a little bit differently, if they could work out their offensive sets a little bit differently, the Lava could very well have won both of those games, and then we would be singing a very different tune. They might have gone 2-2, two and two. they might be the first 500 team in the league, but 0-2 is, um, you know, testament to the fact that they they should be better than 0-2. Bryce Marine scores easily, uh, Fessel Shafat is, is in the contention for second best stop in the league, but we've just not been exposed to him that much. Uh... The team just needs better late-game situation decision-making and coaching and more of an offensive identity. I mentioned the Ozone there. They are six. That is four spots lower than I thought they would be. They went one and two on the weekend, so they did win a game. So they should go above the, the other two teams below them. Again, if you want to argue they're above the Lava, I won't begrudge that, but the Lava played better games and they're more focused. And that's the biggest thing you can say about the Ozone. They don't seem focused. Their display at the end of the game in night two against the Wrath was a shame that they had their coach ejected and then didn't have the foresight to go, we need to win this game for our coach. And instead they were talking and bragging and getting in the faces of the opposition who were missing three of their starters and Darian Slade and Sean Stith managed to beat them by double digits. Because they went, we're going to win this game. We're not going to taunt, we're not going to dance, we're not going to laugh in your face until we've won this game and then we can dance. And that's the difference, is the attitude. Keenan Love, like beyond expectations at stopper. Really good at stopper. Vince Bauman is your second stopper. I'm not high on him, but he's not bad either. This is probably the best stopper depth in the league. The fact that they... I'm not crazy about the fact that they keep switching stopper every quarter, but the fact that they feel comfortable making that decision when other teams are playing their starting stopper the whole game um, is a good sign for the Ozone. So that's good. Um, Maybe that's the reason you put them above the lava. But I don't like their attitude. And I don't like that Brian Bell Anderson has been touted to me from other players and in media and stuff like this as one of the best players in the league and he's not even top 10 in scoring. Um, and I, he's giving away points on the defensive end. And your first round pick can't be a plus minus negative for you, okay? Um, I don't think the league tracks plus minus. They don't. But if I go to violations and sort by most, um, I, I would be doing him a disservice there. He's not doing too bad in terms of... He's actually doing very well compared to the rest of his team in terms of violations. But his total number of points over two games is six. He scored six points in two games from your first round pick, right? That's not good enough. Am I sitting here saying I would do better? No, I'm not. But I am sitting here as someone who's watched every game and done research and is trying to be the best at what I'm doing. And I want you to be the best at what you're doing, BBA, and I've yet to see it. So show me up this weekend, Brian Bell Anderson, but right now your team's attitude stinks and you're not doing enough. For your team. The Griffins are in seventh. That's three spots lower than I thought they would be. Poor understanding of the rules um, is is damaging them, damaged them last night, but also a lot of fouls are, are damaging them. Um, giving away points that don't need to be given away is damaging them, and that's unfortunate. Um, I like Hollenbeck at stopper. 
they're not letting in many points. Least, you know, the, the smallest number of points scored against them in the league. They've only allowed... Oh, they don't have this on the... Oh, no, that's not true, sorry. Um, apologies for me having to take forever. No, they don't have this on the stats. It's on the site, though. Um, their plus-minus is, like, minus 16. So they're lo- they've lost by a combined 16 points in the two games they've played, but they... That's because they're just not scoring enough. They're, they're doing really well defensively. They're just not scoring enough. And that's partly due to Hollenbeck. Scoring should come from Justin Holmes, who's crafty in the air, and, and Flash Stanford, who's just a brute force at the rim with speed. But why that's not translating into points, I can't tell you. Uh, maybe it's just they need to have a, a stronger offensive identity like like the Wrath do. Or sorry, like the the Slashers do and the Mob do and, and the Buzz do. Maybe they just need that. The Rumble are bottom of the league, 0-2, minus 3. I think most people watching were expecting more from them with their pedigree and their team history, and most people have been disillusioned by the start. They've lost Bakari Copeland, potentially to injury. No explanation of where he's gone. That's a big concern for Game 2. Uh, Tippins Hill's been really nice for them as the focal point for the offense. It's great. Um, but they've not really shown anything to get excited about. They're, they're probably best in the league um, at rebounds. If I go to... The, is there a combined LBR stat? There is not a combined LBRs stat. Oh, no, there is. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, if we look at LBRs over all the games, they're actually fourth in the league, having only played two games, but they're getting 60 loose ball retrievals in those two games. So they're averaging 30 LBRs per game, which if you look at the Wrath, who have the most in the league at 109, they're averaging like, you know, 42 per game. So, no, that's... They're averaging 32. So they're up there with the best teams in terms of loose ball retrievals, but they shouldn't have to get that many. Their strategy seems to be shoot from distance, catch any, like go after the ball if we miss, or a single cut to the basket and an alley-oop from either just inside halfway or just behind the basket. And a single cut is not going to do it against these stoppers. We talked about it. Really good physical stoppers that know their timing are going to stop single cuts all day. Throw two stop, throw two options at them. Just have a second guy cutting into the tramps at the same time just to give them something to think about. Um, or even another person to rebound for you if that's what you're really looking for. So yeah, these changes compared to last week don't matter that much. I think this is a good lineup of how good everyone was after the first weekend. But what will really matter is our power rankings after weekend two and seeing where teams move around from there because that's when things will settle in properly. And that's that's our that's our review of the weekend's action, of Sunday night's action, of an all-star five, of, of power rankings for every every single team in the league. Thank you everyone for listening and for watching to Bounce Off today. It's been a long one, but that's because as you can see, when it comes to a morning, Monday morning episode, we are going to have to talk about last night's action and we are also going to have to talk about you know, what to what to expect from the weekend as a whole. Um, this week, the league kicks off on Thursday. We've got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night games this week, which is going to be really exciting. On Bounce Off, we've got Coach Kirsch. We've got an interview with him coming tomorrow. We've got hopefully something coming out on Wednesday, but it remains to see if I can make it happen. If not, maybe I just get a day off, which would be fun. Uh, and we've got a Q&A preview for the weekend coming on Thursday, which may or may not have special guests. That will sort of be us looking at um, 
For sure, it'll be a Q&A. So if you've got any questions about the league thus far, right, this is a big thing. Call to action. If you've got questions about the league thus far that you need answered, whether it's what's happening on the court, who's going to be commentating, um, what what's happening behind the scenes, any question you might have, throw it at me if it's silly, if it's serious, whatever it is, and I will try my best as, as a genuine, like this might sound crazy given what I'm doing right now, but as a genuine journalist, I will try my best to find out what's going on with whatever your question is. If it's a rule thing, I've already shown you, look, it's highlighted. I'm doing my research. If you've got questions, I'll answer them on Thursday. I might have special guests that can also give you their insight on what's going on. And they might, you know, if, if I manage to get these guests on, um, they'll give us insight into what it's like in Vegas as well. Because I'm all the way over here in Glasgow, Scotland. It's beautiful over here, but there's no slam ball live in front of me. So that's that's the slight difference for my eye test compared to others. So that's what's the, the bounce-off schedule for the week. And then obviously we'll have next day reactions to the Thursday night action, Friday night action, Saturday night action, Sunday night action, with next Monday being more of the same from what we've had today. Um, go to the link in my description for the stats that we were talking about earlier. Follow my personal Twitter at Quantum Roberts, Q-U-E-N-T-U-M Roberts on everything. And also go to the link in my description for a wonderful Discord that was set up by Lone Ranger on Twitter. It is originally all about talking about the big three basketball league, but they are now starting to talk about slam ball. So if you want friends that you can talk to about slam ball, you can dissect this information that you can get uh, reactions to what's going on. Join that Discord, get involved with them, tell them I sent you, but you'll also see me around talking about the games and giving some insight. So thank you so much for watching Bounce Off, for listening to Bounce Off. Give us some reviews, give me your comments down below, give me your questions for Thursday's uh, recording. Um, have a beautiful day, everyone. Slam Ball is back in our lives. It might not be here for a long time, but so far it's here for a good time. Um, and I'm really excited. Shout out to the admin on Twitter. You're, you're doing the most and I love it. Um, have a beautiful day, everyone.